We're going to read from Genesis chapter 15 this morning. We're continuing on with our series that we started two weeks ago called Changed by Grace. And we're looking at the concept of grace in, in the Bible, some of the, the doctrinal explanations of what grace is, but also some of the stories that we find in the Gospels and in other parts of Scripture that teach us about God's grace. So this is Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign God, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. That's the phrase that we're going to look at today, this statement that God makes to Abram where he credited Abram's faith as righteousness. Let's pray for a minute. Father God, thank you for allowing us to gather here together in your presence. When we sing songs of worship, we are expressing our gratefulness to you because of your faithfulness and your character and your heart and your love. We are grateful. We're grateful for all that you give. We're grateful for who you are. We're grateful for the opportunity to know you and to discover more and more truth about you. Today, as we come here together, we, we pray for our own lives, and we pray for direction. We pray for a filling of your spirit. We pray for wisdom in knowing how to operate in the midst of this sometimes very crazy and difficult world. We pray for each other. We pray that together uh, we may be able to serve you in a way that has an impact on our communities and on the people who are around us. We pray for our families, that you would be at work in each of their lives, and in the right time and the right way that you will unfold your truth and that you will open the hearts of every person that we love and care about and, and pray for and share our faith with. We also pray for those who are either sick or dealing with great difficulties in life. We pray for Tom Harrison and ask that you would continue to give him strength and the ability to fight back and that you'd fight off the infections in his life and, and that you'd extend his days through the chemotherapy he's going through. Thank you for some of the answers in Gene DeVoisin's life for providing a, a donor. And we ask that you continue to work that, with that process to bring healing back into his life. We pray for Ginny McDonough and ask that you'll continue to surround her with your strength and your presence, and that daily you will be with her each step of this journey. Lord, we pray for those who are silently dealing with some great catastrophe or illness or something that's troubling them, a family crisis. We ask that you'd hear their prayers right now, whether they're praying online at home or here in the room, that you'd hear us, that you'd respond that as the good Father that you are, 
that you would give good gifts to your people in the right time, in the right way. Open our ears to to hear your word and to understand more clearly. Strengthen our faith through this process. And we ask that you will make us as a church more and more effective in your hands. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a short video on faith, which is one of the key topics for this morning. So I'd like you to just watch this short piece. In a world of uncertainty and doubt, faith shines through darkness. It is the unwavering trust in something greater. It gives us courage, connects the seen with the unseen, and empowers us to overcome obstacles. Faith turns storms into opportunities and setbacks into comebacks. Finds us through trials, making us stronger and resilient. With faith, the impossible becomes possible. It fills our hearts with hope, minds with clarity, and spirits with strength. Trust in God. Embrace the journey, for it reveals miracles and realizes dreams. Hold fast to faith. Because with faith, we are never alone. A few years ago, I read John Grissom's novel, The Reckoning which came out around 2018. It's about a man named Pete Banning who served in World War II and was one of the soldiers who survived what became to be known as the Bataan Death March. Now, some of you may know nothing about the Bataan Death March, but this took place in 1942 after American forces could no longer hold and defend Manila Bay in the Philippines. And they surrendered and surrendered to the overwhelming Imperial Japanese Army forces. The march is well known because it was characterized by severe physical abuse and the brutal killings of American and Filipino POWs by the invading Japanese Army. Hundreds of Americans and literally thousands of Filipinos died during this march on their way to their destination. Pete Banning's family had been informed that he had died during the march, and so they were convinced that he was dead, they'd had a funeral and all of that, But Pete and one other American soldier escaped from their imprisonment, and they joined a Philippine guerrilla force that carried out a very effective series of raids on Japanese personnel, vehicles, and planes. And Pete was involved in the planning of a number of those raids. He fought heroically, even though he was sick from his survival mode. And when he finally was rescued from the mountains by returning returning American forces in 1945, He was sent to San Francisco for a long hospital stay. And then he finally got home to Mississippi. But when he got there, nothing was the same. His marriage, his family, nothing was the same for Pete himself. 
Like most of Grisham's novels, The Reckoning is a murder mystery that focuses on the damage that is done from years of lies and hidden secrets. The reckoning comes when Pete can take it no longer and he ends up murdering a man that he believes has destroyed his family in all the years that he's been gone. This is the reckoning. But in the end, we discover that there's a lot more to the story and that Pete actually murdered the wrong man thinking he was doing the right thing. Now, I tell you this story because when we hear the word reckoning, it usually tells us that the time for judgment or for the consequences that have to fall has come around. An accounting must take place, whether those results will be good or bad. And that leads to our topic for today. The title of this message is The Reckoning of Grace. That might sound like an unusual title, but there's a good reason for it, and I'll explain that in just a moment. This is part three of our fall series that we're calling Changed by Grace. In this series, we're looking at theological explanations about grace, as well as stories from the Gospels and other parts of the Bible about people whose lives were radically changed or transformed by an encounter with Jesus or with God's grace. And from this combination, my hope is that we will all see how encounters with the grace of God can change the trajectory of our lives. That's what happened with Abram, the man that we will look at primarily today. So here we go. Welcome to North River today. I am really glad that you're here. And I'm really glad that those of, us, those of you who are online are with us today and that you're watching today. You may not feel it, but there's a buzz in the room today that came through as we were worshiping and as we we're anticipating learning something true and something new about God. So I'm glad that you are, are watching online and that you're with us and that you're extending the reach of our campus today. There's always a question that is behind most of these messages, and I believe that Scripture is answering the questions of our mind. So here is the question that I put forward today. How does God impart His grace to us? How is it that grace comes into our lives and begins to have its impact? We're going to talk about the reckoning of grace. Most of what we're going to discuss today centers around how God bestowed his grace on a man named Abram, who becomes the forefather of faith for both Jews and Christians, and later becomes known as Abraham. There's one insider piece of knowledge about that. The word Abram in Hebrew means father of a nation. And so here's this man whose name means father of a nation, and he's 75 years old and childless when he first encounters God. And later on, God changes his name to become Abraham, which means the father of many nations. First, what we see is how reckoning connects with grace. This sixth verse of the chapter that I read for you a moment ago is translated a number of different ways in some of the older biblical translations. In the NIV, it reads, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. However, if you look at some of the older translations, there are a couple of those that are up on the board right now. In the Wycliffe Bible translation, it says, Abraham believed to God and it was reckoned to him as right wiseness. That's an interesting phrase, both of those, the reckoning and the right wiseness. In the RSV, it says, he believed the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. We're going to look at two more. The uh, New American Standard comes up next, and it says, Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness, 
And then the New International Version that I read a moment ago, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So the title for this morning's message springs from recognizing that word reckoning, which very rarely appears in the Bible. A key development in the unfolding of God's grace to human beings flows from the way to a a life-changing encounter between the Lord and Abraham, the way that we see this unfold in Abraham's life. Early on in Genesis, the Bible's opening book, we meet this man originally known as Abram, father of a nation. Abram is 75 years old when the Lord speaks to him, and he calls him to move away from his home in Ur, which is modern-day Iraq, promising to bless him and to give him descendants. Soon we discover that Abram is old and his wife is nearly as old as he is, and they're childless, and Abram does what the Lord tells him to do. He moves from Iraq to the land of Canaan, which eventually became known as Israel. And there God tells him that his descendants one day will be as many as the stars in the sky. God literally invites him to look up at the sky and begin to count as many stars as he can see, and he says, one day this is what your descendants will be like. And then Abram has the audacity to remind the Lord that he's childless and that he's old and that his wife is beyond childbearing years. And that if he were to die that day, all of his belongings would be inherited by his servant, Eliezer. This is where Abram's faith transaction takes place. So Abram acts on faith. It says in all these different versions of the Bible that Abram believed the Lord's promise. And this is where the reckoning comes in. Reckoning is an age-old concept from the world of accounting or bookkeeping. Let's say that you owe me a long-standing debt. So I come to you and say, I'd like to settle up this debt with you today. What can you pay? And you respond and you say, well, I can't pay the whole thing right now, but I can come up with about half of it in a couple of days. And then my response to you is, well, if you can come up with 60% in a week, I'll reckon that debt as paid in full. And you're overjoyed. You sell off what you have to. You come up with 60% of the debt. The next week, you give that over, and we shake hands, and it's done. The debt that you thought you could never pay off is completely gone. You settled for 60 cents on the dollar, and there was a reckoning. We reckoned that as fully paid. With Abram, what the Lord reckons is Abram's faith. Abram believes the Lord, and the Lord takes that faith, that trust that he puts in the Lord's promises, and the Lord reckons Abram's faith as right wiseness, according to one of these translations, or righteousness. Another version puts it as right standing with God. Now, here's the second thought. This reckoning reveals what we need from God. The New American Standard version of this says, Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Abraham comes to us in the Old Testament essentially as an everyman. Abram is not presented to us as a moral example or the best of the best. We know precious little about him early on, before he was 75. But his story takes up 11 chapters of the opening book of the Bible called Genesis, which means that this is rather prominent in Genesis, and it tells us that we ought to pay attention to what God is doing. Even though God chooses to work through Abram, he is a deeply flawed person. Twice, 
He's afraid and he lies, telling powerful rulers that his beautiful wife is his sister. She must have been some beauty because she's up around 75 too, and other men are chasing after her. This is an amazing story. And he convinces his wife, Sarai, to go along with this. Another time, he and Sarai become convinced that they can help God's succession plan along, and so they have Abram sleep with Sarai's handmaiden, her servant, a woman named Hagar, and to have a son with her. It causes all kinds of problems. But I'm just trying to cite that to say, Abram is, doesn't come to us as a perfect example of how we should live, but he is a man who puts his faith in the Lord when the Lord challenges him to do so. And when Abram believes the Lord and deeply trusts God's promises, that faith is received by God and exchanged for righteousness. This is the reckoning in Abram's life. Okay, that's where these other translations of the Bible can help us. What is it that he receives? What is this righteousness? So the Wycliffe Bible calls this a right-wiseness, or another translation calls it right standing with God. The message, a one-man translation by Presbyterian pastor Eugene Peterson, puts it this way. And he believed, believed God, God declared him set right with God. Folks, that's it. That is the thing that we are all looking for and wanting to be sure about. How can we be set right with God? Whether you're here in the room or you're at home, that is our deepest need in life, to know that when we see God, when we face Him and see Him face to face, no matter how old you are, we have this, this shared desire that we would be right with God and therefore able to stand in His presence. In the final analysis, the goal isn't to be more religious than somebody else. The goal is to be declared to be in a righteous state in God's accounting. If you and I can be declared righteous by God himself, then it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks or what any religion declares. What we need more than anything else is to be declared to be righteous in God's eyes by God himself. For that reason, any belief system or religion that fails to do that is not worth your time and is not worth your attention. Any version of Christianity that does not teach you how you can stand right from God has veered from the path and is no longer teaching what the Bible's central core truth is. This is the central theme of the Bible. Although the Bible contains historical books, poetic books, wisdom literature, biographical accounts, and letters, the Bible's central message is not about history, poetry, wisdom, biographical sketches, or instructions. The central theme that runs from the Garden of Eden to the end of the Bible through Jesus is this, that you can be declared to be in right standing by God even though you mess up again and again and again. This is the very thing that we all need from God. Now, the concept behind this, theologically, is called justification. I want to jump to where Abram's story is cited in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4. Paul raises this in the first three verses of Romans 4. He says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? 
If in fact, he writes, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, in other words, if he was justified based on his own religiosity or performance, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The Apostle Paul reveals the link between Abraham's faith, justification, and righteousness. He tells us that Abraham was not justified because of his works or his personal effort. He says that doesn't work with God. So what did he do? Paul is quoting directly from Genesis 15, 6, the verse that we have focused on so far. He believed God. He didn't just believe in the concept of God. He didn't just believe that there is some God vaguely up there. He believed God, which implies a decision to trust God and to believe in his promises. What God reckons or credits or accounts to the one who believes is righteousness. Remember a few minutes ago, we agreed that the one thing we need is right standing with God. Well, we can't get to that path through self-righteousness because we're flawed, all of us, you and me. So self-righteousness and its path cannot do what we need. It cannot work for us. So what does God do? He gives us his own righteousness, Christ's righteousness instead, but that has to be received through faith. We have to believe that there is a God who is good and there is a God who gives us the very thing he wants. So the idea of justification is often thought of as the linchpin of the gospel. Here's what God does when he justifies a person. He acts as the supreme judge and he renders a verdict. The verdict is, I declare you to be innocent in my sight, even though you're really not. The reason is, someone else took your penalty, and that was Jesus on the cross. Not only are you forgiven, but you're given access to God as his adopted child. It's the one doctrinal or theological concept that even people who hate the idea of doctrine or theology absolutely need to understand. Justification is where God renders a legal, legal verdict that pardons the offender and declares that you are innocent of all charges because Jesus takes your place. Because Jesus takes your place and takes your penalty, your sins and your offenses can never again be brought up against you. As it was with Abraham, your faith in Jesus is credited or reckoned as right standing with God. This is an absolute act of grace, an absolute gift from God. So here's the idea that I want to get across this morning. When God justifies, he no longer counts your sins against you and credits your account with his righteousness, not a righteousness that you earned, it's not a self-righteousness, not about how good we are. It's his righteousness, all in exchange for faith in Jesus. Faith is the key to receiving this grace. That word reckoning is an interesting concept because it can come to us in a number of different ways. Most often when we hear it used in our English vernacular today, uh, reckoning comes like in a day of reckoning, a day of judgment that's going to come. Think of Martina McBride's song, Independence Day. She talks about a day of reckoning that's going to come. And it's bad. It, it means somebody's going to lower the boom on you. But it also has to do with this kind of accounting where God is able 
to do an accounting magic, so to speak, in your account where rather than accounting all of your sins or reckoning all of your sins, he places them in the account of Jesus and marks paid in full in your account when we trust that Jesus is really the Savior who died for our sins. That's why faith is the key to receiving this grace. So Paul writes in Romans 4.16, Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. He goes on to say that Abram becomes the forefather both to Jews who believe in Jesus and to non-Jews, to Gentile people who believe in Jesus. Believing God's promise is the way that the Bible describes this faith. So why is faith the key? Faith is the one thing that we can offer that is not a product of our own effort. Faith is taking God at his word and trusting in his character. I've often described faith as a a deep-seated trust in Jesus to keep his word. It's like when you came in the room this morning, each of you uh, chose a chair except for the camera people who are standing or if they still are, and uh, you decided that that chair would hold you. And in a very split-second moment, you shifted your weight from your body to hold you up and you allowed that chair to hold your weight. And when you sat back, you trusted that it would hold you. That's what faith is. It's trusting that Jesus will do what he has promised he will do, that he will hold you up, that he will hold you and that he will take your sins away from you and he will allow you to sit and rest in his grace. When God's grace falls on us, it is often like a waterfall flowing upon us. When you really come to understand it, it's, it's overwhelming, it's refreshing, it's cleansing, it's powerful, it's filling. And it falls on us from outside of ourselves. We don't create it, we don't earn it, we just stand under it and benefit from it. Here's my question. Wherever you are, whether you're at home or in the room today, would you like to take Jesus up on that offer of grace? Perhaps some of you have already, and and this is a moment to renew that. But it starts with a decision in the mind that says, I get this. God is offering to take my sins and to put them on Jesus and then to give me his righteousness. And there's a reckoning that comes. He takes our faith and instead he gives us his righteousness. And if you make that decision and then you declare that to God and you tell him, I'm trusting in Jesus. I recognize that I've sinned against you. I need to turn from that. And I'm asking you to allow that grace to fall on me like a waterfall. He will begin to change your life from the inside out. If you'd like to take God up on that offer, you can pray a simple prayer, something like this. I'm going to pray right now, and you can repeat the words or similar to what I say. You can say that back to God. Dear God, I recognize that I fall short of your expectations. But in your reckoning, you are willing to take my faith and to give me the righteousness of Jesus Christ instead. And so I'm putting my faith in you right now. And I'm asking you to do the same thing that you did for Abraham that you would do for me. Give me a righteousness that is from outside of myself and begin to make me new on the inside little by little so that I can make sense of what you are doing. And allow me to experience 
the flowing graciousness of your goodwill. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the idea. When God justifies, He no longer counts your sins against you, and He credits your account with His righteousness, all in exchange for faith in Jesus. We are not a self-righteous people. Actually, we're a people who acknowledge that we're sinners saved by grace, but we are people who are willing to stand under the waterfall and let it fall upon us and cleanse us and flow down from heaven upon us and to change us. I can think of no finer way to renew or to celebrate that right standing with God than by celebrating communion together. If you're at home, you may want to quickly grab uh, some juice and some kind of a, a cracker or a piece of bread and, or some wine, and you can run home and do that. But we're going to celebrate together right now. It says in the Gospels that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered with his disciples. And during that meeting, he transformed the idea of the Passover ceremony for them. At one point, he took a piece of bread and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. So there is a, a small wafer on the bottom part of your communion cup if you grab one of those kits in today and if you peel that off when we eat this bread what we are declaring is that we believe that Jesus came in the flesh and then he gave up his own body for us and he asked us to remember so let's remember Jesus this way Lord Jesus thank you for coming into this world in a humble way for experiencing all of the difficulties and the trials that come in this world. Thank you for on that cross taking my place and taking our place and for paying for our sins and for allowing us to experience new life. And then he took the cup. If you peel off the top, little layer of that cup. Jesus also said, this is the blood of my covenant with you. And he promised that when we drink it, that we are calling out what he has done for us, both his death and his resurrection until the day he returns. And so when we drink this, we are remembering that his blood covers our sins. He shed his blood so that we don't have to shed ours. And we drink out of gratefulness to him. Lord, we renew this covenant of grace with you. And perhaps there are some who are doing this for the first time, knowing that today is the day that they've entered this transaction by putting their faith in you. And I pray that you will continue to lead us in following you well, following you wisely, following you faithfully, as we share with others that there is a peace with God that can be known and that can be accessed when we come through Jesus. Thank you for being a God who reckons faith as right standing. And today we want to leave 
the presence of this room and the time of, of worship and celebration and teaching, knowing that we walk into a world that in many ways is out of sync with you, but that our hearts right now are standing with you and standing in your grace. Put others in our pathway that we can share what we're learning with. Put others in our pathway who have questions, questions that the scriptures can answer. Put others in our pathway that we can pray for and that we can lead to this kind of peace with you forever. Thank you for allowing us to be right here this morning. In Jesus' name.